This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. One of my favourite audience observations was a Tuesday night at five o'clock, standing in the foyer, these three guys lope in, tall guys, probably 21, 22, hands in their pockets, hoodies, kind of loping in. They went straight into the augmented reality exhibition, they downloaded the app and they were exploring the art and my marketing manager just looked at me and went, how do you get them into a gallery? Like, they didn't look like gallery goers. And then I thought maybe they're just in because it's kind of cool art, but then they went upstairs and explored the paint chairs. So that to me is a really good signal that we're not just attracting people who love science, we're not just attracting people who love gallery spaces or museums or science centres, we're attracting 15 to 25 year olds and we're making them curious about where the world is going and what they want to achieve. And so I'm really excited to share it with you. I'm really excited to be part of the South Australian landscape and to provide something that is exciting and compelling enough to start a different conversation about what we are capable of here and why what we're doing and what you're doing is going to make a difference in the long term. This is Josh Rapoon, and you are listening to the What School Could Be podcast. Before we start the show, please consider joining the rapidly growing What School Could Be global online community. Simply install the What School Could Be app on your smart device or go to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I look forward to seeing you there. Today, my guest is Dr. Kristen Alford, the director of the Museum of Discovery, otherwise known as MOD, at the University of South Australia. She has a bachelor's degree in engineering, a PhD in minerals processing, and most recently, a master's in management with a focus on strategic foresight. I was alerted to Dr. Alfred's work by Luke Ritchie, the subject of my sixth episode almost three years ago. Thank you, Luke. In an article for a publication called City Magazine, Dr. Alfred wrote the following, which I think captures her mind and heart to a T. Quote, and we repeat that cycle of imagining and reimagining in the way we include Aboriginal ways of knowing that hint at a new way of being Australian, in the way we design learning experiences for young adults that sit outside traditional formal education processes, in the way we provide clues for creating work futures rather than relying on old metaphors of disruption. Imagination gives us power because it gives us the courage to do things differently, to continue to see things in a new light, to give our visitors the power to imagine themselves differently." So what is MOD and why would we feature its director on this podcast, which is aimed at educators and education leaders around the world? MOD is a multi-award-winning futuristic museum of discovery. It's a place to be and be inspired by ideas at the intersection of science, art, and innovation. Its exhibitions are designed for people ages 15 to 25, showcasing how research shapes our understanding of the world around us to inform our futures. MOD is like no other museum experience in Australia and, I dare say, the world. It brings together researchers, industries, and students to push boundaries, explore, and be inspired. 
It presents one in-gallery and one online exhibition each year, along with a program of workshops, talks, and events. In so many ways, MOD is the very essence of what school, what learning could be. And now, here's my conversation with Dr. Kristen Alford. Kristen, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Thanks, Josh, and it's such a pleasure to be coming to you from Ghanayata, which is in Adelaide in Australia. Mm, that's awesome. We're several thousand miles apart. This is the amazing part about technology, right? We can have these kinds of conversations, which is absolutely terrific. So, Kristen, we're going to dive into the deep end of the pool shortly, but I want our listeners to get to know you a bit first. So, let's start here. So, you noted to me that both your parents were, quote, academics, and that you did a year of elementary school in Iowa City, Iowa. So I spent three years in Iowa City getting my undergraduate degree in history, and I'm very fond of that place. So what brought your parents to America, to Iowa, and other locations in the U.S.? And in what ways did your, quote, overseas experiences shape your perspectives and growing sense of independence and self-knowledge and your growing sense of what Kristen could be. It's so interesting, isn't it? I have very fond memories of Iowa, and I was very young. I was in grade one, year one, when we were there. Mm. And as as you noted, my parents are both academics. They're both pharmacy academics. Interestingly, my father's research was in drug development and especially looking at delivery of drugs for the lungs. So looking at very, very small particles. My mother's research was more in community pharmacy and looking at over-the-counter counselling and advice, especially for things like asthma and diabetes. And so that trip really was a result of my father's research and, and being able to spend a year at the university there in Iowa City. And then later on, we, we spent six months when he did another sabbatical in New Jersey. I used to joke, you know, oh, yeah, I got to spend some time in the States when I was young and then people would ask where and I would say Iowa and New Jersey. <laughs> and it wasn't really on the top of people's <laughs> top of people's visiting lists. But both those experiences, I think when you're young and, you know, we, I lived in the same house all through childhood and early university. The house that I lived in was actually built on land next to my grandmother's house. And so we had a long family history in that area and there was a, a certain rhythm to life and familiarity. And when you're taken out of that for a specific period of time, all of those memories are, are just so vivid, I think, in comparison. So we used to joke when I was growing up that I'd be able to tell my kids that, you know, I used to walk to school in the snow, which was not something you could say as a barefoot kid out of Queensland where it's hot. You never see that sort of weather. Mm. So I think it's really those sort of startling kind of experiences. And I think there's also something around just being around people who aren't like you in some of those formative years. And so, mm -hmm. you know, different culture, different way of organizing things, different seasons. I think those just kind of popped me out of maybe perhaps a set of expectations. And I guess I found myself, I guess, feeling more like a citizen of the world mm, <laughs> than wow. I might have felt otherwise. Mm. And so I didn't I didn't do the classic a, a lot of Australians do the classic sort of travel to Europe and and spend, you know, two years working and really exploring. I didn't do that so much. Mm. But I think that piece of me that identifies with being, you know, somewhere bigger than just place is yeah. really sort of shaped my appetite for 
being curious, I suppose. Yeah, that's awesome. I remember when I was five years old, my mother and father had seven kids. So we were a family of nine and I was the youngest. There were six boys, one girl. And I remember when I was five, my mother and father took us on a on a trip from Hawaii. We actually went on a sailing ship, not a sailing ship, it was an ocean liner. And, and we went to California and bought a van and then spent, I think, six or seven weeks driving around the United States, nine people crammed into this tiny van. But my memories of that are so vivid. And I, I, I would look back on that and say, that was an important moment for me as a kid because I did grow up just like you in the same place in the same house, but that was a magic moment in terms of seeing the world. The world was really the U.S., you know? So I can really appreciate what you shared with us. So you you also noted that you loved rhythmic gymnastics and eventually coached it while at university. So in what ways did the choreography you coached inform your life now? Do you carry that with you, that sense of choreography? I mean, weirdly, I do. So I did ballet when I was in primary school. I really enjoyed dance. I, I, I did dance all through high school as well. And the school that I went to started a, ryth- a rhythmic gymnastics club when I was in year nine. And I thought, oh, you know, I, I'm not <laughs> I'm not really one for sport. Right. I, I wasn't sort of an active, you know, netball, soccer player. I hated running, and I just thought that would that would give me something which was maybe a bit more sporty as well as the as well as the ballet. And I I really loved it. I loved the the sharpness of it you know you're choreographing a routine that might be a um, a minute and 20 seconds long to be able to dance but with with those tools of the rope or the hoop or the ball or the ribbon or the clubs was was you know just gave it a I guess a more of a challenge and I ended up you know going through high school with a really close group of friends from from my year level who who all got involved in that club early and you know we got to do some really interesting things through that combination of both dance and rhythmic gymnastics mm. you know you know just things that I sort of still strike me today as being opportunities that you, you, you wouldn't otherwise otherwise get you know performing at large events or significant events for the for the city that we were living in which was Brisbane at the time I guess I, I would also say I really enjoyed my schooling experience but especially my high school experience I, I really enjoyed the content we did in the subjects that we did I really enjoyed the leadership opportunities that I got, I, I did way, way, way too many extracurricular activities, <laughs> probably, as a, probably as a form of procrast- productive procrastination mm-hmm. to avoid doing the real work. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess I didn't really want that experience to end. So when I, when I went on to university, I decided that I would do my coaching and judging qualifications. And I ended up coaching at a couple of different schools. Then as I went through undergraduate and postgraduate, that was, that was my part-time job. But it was really a, a part-time job where I had enormous autonomy and freedom. You know, I was working with with young people, really trying to push the limits of of what they could do together as a team, and and I yeah, I re- I really enjoyed it, and I think if you think about sort of if I reflect on how that's carried through my life, it's done a couple of things. That the first thing is it's. I mean, I'm, I'm still a, quite an active participant in those volunteer organisations or things that exist outside work and family. Mm-hmm. And that early judging experience gave me confidence to take up artistic gymnastics judging when my middle daughter was was doing gymnastics. And that was a really great way to give back to, you know, the club that she was part of. That experience Weirdly enough, and I know this makes no sense, gave me confidence to also help out with doing officialing 
for rowing. So again, my mm. middle daughter took up rowing at high school and I'm now a boat racing official, mm. which I wow. love and really enjoy. So it's given me it's given me that sense of confidence that, you know, you can apply those skills in really different domains and and that that sense of of being part of something, being part of a team and, and striving mm. is is important even if you're not the star or if mm. you're not if you're not the person and playing the sport, actually all of those other roles in support of the sport are really important. Mm. And then I think the choreography part has really informed the way that I think about design. Mm. So when I first started here at MOD and trying to think about the design of exhibitions, having had no previous experience in museums or exhibition design at all and thinking about how we might start to put together all of these themes and ideas and research that we wanted to show, I found myself going back to some principles of choreography. You know, mm. what's the visitor experience like? Are there points of balance? Are there points of frenetic activity? Do we have the right mix of, you know, pivots and leaps in terms of the felt experience for people? Do we mm. have moments of of high song? Do we have moments of quiet reflection? Mm. So I, th- I think about the visitor's journey through <laughs> our museum mm-hmm. very much as how, how do we choreo- choreograph this so that it has this very rich experience that brings out lots of different mm. emotions and it's not just it's not just one note and it's not just one movement. Yeah. That's perfect. You absolutely anticipated my my next question which is me wondering whether you could draw whether it was a stretch to draw a straight line between choreographing rhythmic dance early in your life and taking a job choreographing a museum of discovery. And so perfect. You you've hit that one right on the head. <laughs> And it's it's so funny because I was at a school reunion a couple of years ago, and I think I've I think I've done something really a bit odd. You know, my my original degrees I was good at maths and science. My original degrees in engineering, and now I'm now I'm running a a futuristic museum of discovery. Mm-hmm. I think that's quite uh, unusual and a bit of a leap. And I went back to back to my school reunion, and I said to a couple of old colleagues what I was doing, and they said, "Oh yes, we always knew you were going to do something like that, Kristen." <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, I didn't, <laughs> but I think that that interesting reflection on on just that combination of you know doing mm. those maths and science at school, but being heavily involved in something like rhythmic gymnastics has always meant that that combination of arts and science has probably been present in my life. Yeah, that's awesome. So when you were just a kid, you and your dad made a solar water heater for a school project. So what do you remember, Kristen, about that moment? Like how, looking back now, was it possibly a portent of things to come in the future. And I suspect our listeners will want to know about the school uniform you designed with the broad brimmed hat and long sleeves. Like, what was that all about? I I reflect on those experiences because people often say, what what did you want to be when you grew up? Or how did you know you're going to be a futurist? Those are sort of two different questions, but they came came to that same kind of exploration of when did I start to show an interest in futures or why does futures make sense for me? And if I, if I go back in, in memory, then that, that, that instance of making the, the solar water heater with, with my dad, I would have been year four, so eight years old. And, you know, it was one of those practical science experiments that something, something at school had prompted me to want to explore something. And, and as I said, because my, because my dad was an academic, you know, he was at the university and he was able to take me around to the, to the solar panel farm. This was in the 80s, the, the solar panel farm, experimental solar farm that was at the university. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I reflect back on that thinking, 
We must have been thinking, I mean, I know when you look at the literature, we must have been thinking about the effects of greenhouse gases and climate change at that time. You look at the literature and you know that we were, mm-hmm. even if not in the in the huge public domain. And we know we were thinking about holes in the ozone layer and we know we were thinking about looking for, you know, alternative energy mixes. And I just I just think there is something in that in in that project, which is like I still remember my my, my sort of my puzzlement as, you know, if we can if we can bring energy from the sun, why why don't we do this all the time? Right. So that's that's what that project to me speaks to. It, it it's that probably that early awareness of thinking about the system we've got and and wondering what the alternatives mm. are, and, and also being excited about new technologies and understanding how these technologies might work. I mean, and that was a really simple project that involved you know a lot of hose pipe and aluminium foil and. You know, but I just thought it was the greatest thing ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the school uniform sounds like just more evidence of what was already unfolding yeah, at that I point. Think, I think so. And I think, you know, again, when you look at, you know, my memory of that is is not, you know, my grandmother was a commercial artist, so a graphic artist. She was a beautiful illustrator. And much to my sadness, that, that gene was not passed down to me at all. And so mm. I remember <laughs> entering this competition and my, my entrant was, you know, this this very focused on thinking about the ozone layer. So a very large brimmed hat, long sleeves, you know, mm. cooling fabrics, all of these things to kind of help us with the with the future of the atmosphere. And a lot of the other entries were really fashion-oriented rather than problem-solving. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I just I just remember kind of looking at the starkness of that and feeling quite pleased with myself <laughs> that I've been brave enough to put to put that in mm-hmm. as well, not being not being an artist. But I look at those two examples as as being you know, in hindsight, evidence of this interest in in the role that science and technology could play in solving problems and this interest in thinking about different possibilities for the future. Yeah, that's awesome. So we're gonna we're gonna fast forward into the future. And Kristen, I know this might sound really nutty, but I spent a really long time scrolling through your LinkedIn activity feed. In fact, Once I started, I could not stop scrolling, and you might ask why. (laughs) Well, two things. One, I noticed you tend not to post original posts. What you do is like posts by your connections. So I found myself trying to figure out the why behind your likes. And after looking at all these posts that you liked, I found myself feeling unexpectedly hopeful about both the present and the future. So there seems to be, based on your likes a fantastic amount of crazy awesome things going on, at least in Australia. And you are the muse alerting the public. So my question is, outside of your day-to-day work at MOD, what are you seeing that might give our listeners hope that innovation and creativity and imagination are alive and well in the world? And if if you want to tell the story of the young, tall poppy award as a way of answering my question, so much the better. But you take it wherever you want to go with that. Yeah, so I think that's one of the reasons that I actually really enjoy LinkedIn because I have a really great network there that is doing really amazing things. And often you might not see that on a on another network which isn't as professionally 
oriented. So Mm -hmm. I have a lot of people in education, I have a lot of people in science, I have a lot of people in museums, and they're doing really interesting, creative things all the time. And so, you know, one of the posts that you mentioned is the is the fact that Renly Lim, who's at the University of South Australia, where where I'm based with MOD, has just been announced as one of South Australia's tall poppies. Mm-hmm. And for people who aren't familiar with Australian culture, you know, we're a culture of egalitarianism. So we don't, you don't stick your head above the parapet. It's a bit different to the States where, you know, you champion your, mm-hmm. you know, your, your successes. In, in Australia, we, we kind of cut people down so they don't get too cocky. <laughs> <laughs> There's this idea about, you know, you don't want to be a tall poppy. You don't want to stick out from the crowd. You, you know, you, you wouldn't you trumpet your own achievements or anything like that. And so we, ha- we have this thing, which I think is national, called the Tall Poppy Awards, which is really meant to celebrate scientists who are sort of emerging to the middle of their careers, who are starting to establish an expertise for themselves. And it's, and it's really an award that then encourages them to shout about it to the public, mm-hmm. you know, to talk about talk about their work and to engage the public in what they're doing. And, and Renly is absolutely fantastic anyway and totally deserving of that award. But it's it's one of those things that makes those aspects of life that are moving towards, you know, a really interesting sort of progress in terms of solving some of those deep problems that, that often go invisible in the popular media. And mm-hmm. so... You know that that I think in itself is a is a really nice example of of some of those aspects of of change that we that we do see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of stopped me in my tracks because what she was working on her research was about medications that seniors take, and uh, her question had to do with, well, is there a downside to this at all of these medications? And I was just like, wow, amazing, because I've watched your TED talks, I've watched other talks that you've done. And you've spoken extensively about the idea that, you know, one solution in one context could actually turn turn out to be quite negative in another. And so she seemed to have latched onto that. And I just came away from all of these likes thinking, whew, boy, there is a lot going on in the world. And I guess, you know, we tend to get pulled by social media platforms and major media into this narrative of negativity. But what I was picking up was that you're observing each one of these and and your like actually means something. That's kind of the point to the thing, you know? Oh, that's that's a yeah, that's a really nice reflection. And I guess I I mean I think that's also interesting because when I think about the work that I do, I often say I'm a synthesizer. Mm. So I'm not necessarily the person that comes up with the radically original idea. And I'm not I'm definitely not the person who who completes <laughs> completes the project but i am i'm a pretty good first follower i think like i'm mm. i am the person who sees something interesting and then can triangulate that with a couple of other things and go oh if we did these things that might be there so it's not mm. so i i do really have this kind of active scanning process in my practice as a futurist where i'm looking for the interesting things and i'm filing those away because then at another point i will put that interesting thing with something else to make something something new so it's a, it's actually really it's been really nice to hear your reflection on that because I hadn't thought about the way that I am on social media in that context, but I think that rings yeah. rings really true. Yeah. And I guess the other thing I was thinking of when you when you said that, I, I might have mentioned this, but as part of our design process at MOD, 
we're quite participatory. So we want our community and our visitors to be involved in a lot of different ways as we think about and design, develop and execute our exhibitions. And so one of the things that we run is a thing called the Future Themes Forum, mm-hmm. where we get together a bunch of people from basically year 10 students and up, teachers, undergraduates, up to professors, arts workers, government people, you know, at all levels of of organisations. And we ask them, what's important for you to be thinking about when we think about the future? Mm. And the last one of those we ran in May, and it it was a really rich day. And it was quite, you know, you could see that people got a lot out of it. But when we looked at the conversations they had had during the day using the open space methodology, we basically wrote a list out of that, which we've called everything is broken all at once, because that's what people were talking about. They were talking about our approach to climate is broken and the climate itself is broken. Education is broken. Capitalism is broken. Democracy is broken. And and there was this real sense of coming out of a period of, you know, the last two years of COVID that systems are not doing what they need to be doing and we need to have, you know, there are things that just aren't working. Mm. And so the challenge I've put to the team in designing this exhibition for 2024 is to imagine what things look like if they're not broken, Mm. which is actually really hard. Wow. (laughs) It's also been quite interesting because it does require you to pay attention to the things that are working and and the systems that are working. And even if they're just quiet whispers at the moment, there is something something emerging in the stillness. So that's yeah. that's what we're trying to do for, for 2024. And so I think, you know, to, to come back to that process of synthesising and liking and making visible, it, 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 it's part of that listening process, I think. Yeah, that's awesome. So Kristen, quick, possibly quick side tangent. For years, I've read about and been interested in the works of futurists. And here in Hawaii, where I'm based, we have a favourite son, Jim Dater, who everyone looks to as one of the world's foremost future thinkers. And also in a previous episode with Laura McBain at the Stanford D School, we spoke at length about educators and students as shaping the future. So I found it curious that as I prepared for today's conversation, I kept hearing and reading the word foresight. So your resume has too many uses of the word to count. And in fact, its top headline notes your degree in strategic foresight. So is this just a minor difference of meaning possibly between the lexicons of Australia and the United States? Or is there more to the denotations and connotations of the word foresight versus futurism or futurist? Oh, so now you're bringing me back to, I think, week one of my master's where I swear we spent a whole morning <laughs> just unpicking, unpicking these words. And I, and I, think, it's, I think it's actually really interesting because, you know, even the, even the name futurist sends, sends some foresight practitioners, you know, into, into rage. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, the, new, the nuance is interesting. So I, I would say there is a body of academic work which is around futures thinking which is really a, a set of tools and methodologies that that originally come out of industries like defence and energy, but obviously have spread much further than that. A series of tools and methodologies that give us a scaffold to deliberately think about the future because actually thinking about the future is quite difficult. Mm. And so so this discipline of of the practices and the and the tools you might use to to think about the future and do that, that futures thinking is one aspect of it. And again, you know, that use of the future versus futures is a really interesting distinction because, you know, the discipline would argue that there's no such thing as the future because it doesn't exist. It's not 
set, it's unknown, mm. it's still to be developed. And so what instead of the future, what we have is many possible futures. Mm. So that, that distinction mm-hmm. about future versus futures. So, you know, we try I try and use the word futures because that encourages people to think about options and possibilities and pluralities rather than getting fixated on the prediction or on the one kind of future. You know, and then there's future studies, which I think is mm-hmm. the study of futures thinking. Um, mm-hmm. Some people call that futurology. Other people hate futurology because it <laughs> sounds more like, you know, astrology. sounds more like tellers than astrology <laughs> and it sounds, it doesn't work for people. Yeah. The notion of futurist, I think, is a, is a tricky one because the, that, that word futurist is, is co-opted by so many different types of people, you know, anything from from deep thinking, discipline-driven futurists through to, you know, a, a shiny speaker on a stage talking about a future of, you know, something, whether that be, you know, you play futurist bingo, it'll be the metaverse, web three, whatever you like, yeah. um, without a lot of depth. So I think that's why that word is, is tricky. And then for me, the difference between futures thinking and foresight out of doing my master's is really that foresight has this added bit to it, which is action. Mm. And so you can do all of the thinking that you want in futures thinking, but unless you actually then put that into strategy or put that into an implementation plan, it doesn't land, you know. So mm. so foresight is the landing of futures thinking into, into the work that we do today, mm. I think would be the way that I would describe, you know, all, all of those different nuances. And of course, People use them in different ways anyway, but but for me, that's that's kind of the distinction, you know, that, yeah. that it's really important to do that futures thinking, but that strategic foresight piece is about landing that body of thinking into a clear strategy and implementation plan. Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. I knew there was a reason that I wanted to ask that question. <laughs> so thank you for that. That's, that's fabulous. So Kristen, one more question before we take a break and get into mod more directly. So in March of 2019, you wrote a piece on Medium titled, That Which We Are Taught to Fear Is Not Our Enemy. And I'm going to read the update at the bottom of your piece. So, quote, organizers estimate that approximately 150,000 students and supporters participated in the March 2019 climate strikes in over 60 cities and towns across Australia and a hundred more countries internationally. In Adelaide, the students spoke about the causes and effects of climate change and called for action to reduce fossil fuels and develop renewable technologies, unquote. So your piece opened the door for me to this question. What do educators and education leaders around the world, or at least in Australia and the United States, need to think about with regard to a surge in student activism around climate change, gun violence, ethnic intolerance, abuses of capitalism, and a host of other issues the world is grappling with right now. Like, I wonder if the majority of educators, Kristen, fear student activism and see it as the enemy of ordered learning. Yes, no, wondering what you think about that. Oh, I might have to answer the yes, no at the end of a out loud thinking session, I think. I mean, I, I wrote that article because I was thinking about this model of macrohistorical change that Sahel Inayatullah talks about, which is, you know, so- cycles of macrohistorical change. So we can see changes in who holds the power, essentially. Mm. And so at the moment, you would argue that in this kind of society that we've got at the moment, the, the power is held by 
corporates, it's held by the merchants in this in this model, people who are seeking to monetize ideas, and it has been for some some time. But Sahel's model would say that there is a there is a time at which the inequities become so great that the system starts to fail, and just outside the system there are the people who've been marginalised by that system, basically shaking down, <laughs> shaking down the gates and demanding change. Mm-hmm. And then the system collapses and is reborn in a more equitable structure where you have the rise of, well, in this model, the rise of the worker. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, so, so to me that means, you know, you, you, you're sort of going back to grassroots and, and, and rethinking the way that the system is going to, to be better for, for more people. And so when I was thinking about, well, who is outside the system, who is marginalised by the system we, we have, obviously there's going to be, you know, we, can, we, we already see what it is. It, it's, it's discrimination on the basis of race, it's discrimination on the basis of gender or sexuality. You know, those people are falling, you know, or arguing outside the system and you can see these really great political movements coming up to kind of shake those gates and in, in, in the other breath you can see the people within the within the city walls, you know, holding on tight and, and trying to pull things back to what they were mm-hmm. when they were working. And I, and I just started to think about who are the emerging leaders that I'm seeing, you know, who are really challenging the system and it, it was all young women. Mm. I mean, not all young women, but I was just struck by, you know, Malala. Mm-hmm. I was struck by the the student activism after the school shootings in in Florida. I was struck by Greta Thunberg. Greta. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it just like they just seemed, and then there just seemed to be this emergence of of young women who who weren't afraid to express their voice and point out the flaws in the system in, in really ways that demanded attention. Mm. And I just thought, isn't that interesting that we, we look outside our communities or we look outside ourselves for the things we should be afraid of, you know, people not like us or these external threats that we can't quite put our finger on, but actually what if the thing that is most scary is actually within our, it's, you know, that, that old horror movie trope of it's coming from inside the house. <laughs> right. And I just, I just thought, what if, what if that is it? What, what if, what if the, I mean, it's not purely young women, but you know, what, what if the young women inside our houses are actually the thing that are going to topple the things that we try and hold dear? Mm. And what, and what does that mean for society if, if that wave, if that next wave of, of significant change is coming from that mindset, what, what might it look like? And I think, you know, I, th- I think this is a really interesting problem because I, I hear a lot when we're talking, especially when we're talking about climate change because it's so inter- intergenerational. Oh, you know, we, we really do need young people coming to solve these problems. You know, it's going to be the young people who are going to help mm. us get out of this mess. And I get, re- I get really angry yeah. because it's not a young people's problem. It's just that they're going to have to deal with it for longer. But if, you know, if you're you know, if you're if you're middle aged today, you should be absolute. It is absolutely your problem. Mm. You know, if if you're retired today, it is absolutely your problem. And so I, I also get frustrated with this with this mentality of things falling onto the young, or assuming that the young are responsible for change, or assuming that you know people people my age can't change their perspective or they're stuck. Or I, and I get really frustrated with I don't know just with this expectation that your life somehow finishes at twenty five, and once once you're formed at twenty five you're stuck. So I think all of those things were really going around going around my head. 
because I mean a more interesting question is is for educators I think is and I mean this partly comes to thinking about the conversations that you and I both had with Parul who was who was your last guest mm-hmm. but thinking about those unlikely combinations that he talks about yes you know what what if the real power for change comes out of the co-design between educators and young people yeah where you have wisdom and imagination both present and both actively engaged in the question. You know, that to me is kind of where the excitement sits a little bit. And I think we have these conversations all the time here because Maud is aimed at, you know, that young, 30, you know, 15 to 25-year-old audience. And I've, re- I've really grappled with that. You know, why aren't we for older people? Why aren't we for... But I think in in asking all those questions... Yeah, I don't know. I, I just feel mm-hmm. like there's this there's this question about who sits who sits outside, who's not being listened to, what happens when they start to be listened to, what kind of change could we expect? And then how do I, as someone who sits kind of, you know, safely within the system, respond to that? What might I have to dismantle mm-hmm. of my own beliefs and what might I have to start to accept? Yeah. Those are all really good questions. Yeah, that's awesome. So, hey, everyone, stay with us. We'll be right back with more questions for Dr. Kristen Alford. Hey there. Are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, friends. This is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be?, As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Hey everyone, we are back with Dr. Kristen Alford, the Director of the Museum of Discovery at the University of South Australia. So one more question before we get into MOD. So Kristen, the Museum of Discovery has been recognized by a number of awards that come from the perspective of design and museum content which must be so gratifying to you. So zooming us up to 10,000 feet so we can look out over the vast landscape of museums. And I realize, you know, this is a big question, but what is the role of museums in the education of our youth? And I sense in the more than 100-year-old factory model of education, museums were not too much more than the object of field trips and possibly a place kids love to go to because they were not at school. Um, So let's make this the most wide open question possible. So like, what are your thoughts? Are you, are you seeing any changes outside of MOD where museums are becoming more central to learning? The first thing that comes to mind is I think over the last, and I don't, you know, at least over the last 10 years, there's, there's been a real push in the cultural institution sector to really think about the role of museums in their communities. And, you know, a real appreciation, I think, 
you know, especially when we're reflecting on whose stories are told in cultural institutions, and especially if they're if they're significant state institutions that tell the story of who we are as a people, yeah. whose whose stories are actually represented, and and recognizing the role of privilege and recognizing the role that you know, especially for a collecting museum, you know, a lot of those collections will have been collected by white men. And so the collections will represent what white men had access to and there are things that then are missing because they didn't have access or didn't prioritise those things. And so, you know, in, in the museum movement generally there's been this push for starting to think about decolonisation, thinking about the stories of people who who aren't represented in that institution, how do we how do we start to unpick that and how do we start to, to remake that? And... You know, there's also been this sort of movement to to really push for the fact that museums aren't neutral, and so, mm. you know, thinking of thinking about the fact that they do bring a specific perspective and they do bring, you know, you know, like a lot of the things that we we kind of understand, there are there is a choice that we are making when we when we start to think about the curation of what is in a museum, mm-hmm. and so what what story are we choosing to tell is is really important there. But I think when you when you start to unravel that you also then to start to unravel the the relationship that the museum has with its community Mm. because it's no longer the holder of one single truth and museums are really trusted entities and so you can't just kind of unpick everything I think I think it's important for museums to have that sense of being trusted so if you're going to maintain that sense of trust you need to do that you need to do that unpicking and that remaking with the community Mm. and so what I've seen certainly in the in the almost seven years that I've been with MOD is you know we're not a collecting institution so you know that's that's sort of a little bit different but in the general museum piece what I've seen is this rethinking of how museums are co-creating these stories with the Mm. community and Mm -hmm. how they're responding to that community activism as well. Mm. And so they become less like a textbook. Mm, then right. you know it's not something you come and you you look at the bits and you read the you look at the artifacts and you read the text and then you go okay I, all of that money all of that information's been transmitted to me they become more of a conversation and mm. so that's where i think the role that museums have with education becomes far more interesting because we're seeing that same transition in the classroom you know mm-hmm. less lecture models in the university system perhaps you know, more flipped classroom, more conversation, more project-based learning, more yeah. opportunities for inquiry. And so with with those sort of education and cultural institutions starting to rethink that co-creation space, I think there are more opportunities for some different mm. some different models to emerge. Yeah. You know, I remember, Kristen, when this came onto my radar screen in a, in a really big way, I was teaching U.S. history. This was back a number of years ago. And I remember one of the Smithsonian's in Washington was putting on an exhibition that included the Enola Gay, which is the you know the bomber that dropped one of the bombs on on I think it was either Hiroshima or Nagasaki, and mm-hmm. a really fierce tussle broke out within the community at large, not just museum curators, about what that story would be and how it would be told. Was it a story of American heroism or? with the stories of the after effects of of the bomb and so on. And I just remember as an educator, there was a flash of light and a door opened and I thought, oh, wow, this is something I could just walk my students directly into, into the debate. And then I, I just had this feeling like, then I knew for a moment that museums were now going to be my friend, you know? That And in the larger discussion that was happening globally, you know, even discussions around what was happening with the, at the Acropolis 
and uh, debates over whether some of those items in the museums in, in Athens needed to be returned from the British Museum back to Greece, that sort of a thing. I just saw opportunity after opportunity. And so that's really where that question came from. I think it's fascinating for educators in whatever subject you're teaching that you could be involved in that. So Yeah, and I, I think it's it's also really it's also really tough because we're kind of in that post truth moment as well. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you, you know, your, your media and your social media environment allows anything to be true. Yes. So I think the important thing is to be able to open up those conversations, but then to be able to argue for a point of common reality yeah. and say, well, what, what can we agree on and what, what is objectively real? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so location might be or, you know, there might be something that, that is that is true in that moment. And then what are the different perspectives that we bring? And I think that's that's also something that needs to be brought back into the into the consideration because I think a lot of us got so excited by the ability to see the range of perspectives that we we stopped also looking for the for mapping ourselves to a point in yeah. or, or or to thinking about what what is actually agreed upon and what is what is objectively a, a shared reality that that makes that makes sense. So I think it's that pendulum swing, and mm-hmm. I, I find pendulums really problematic. <laughs> Agreed. So so I'm always looking for the more like the circular moment. You know, what's what's the spiral instead of the pendulum? How do yeah. we actually how do we actually, as you said, take the ten thousand foot view? How do we get up a little bit higher and see the landscape so that we can yeah, yeah move from there. All right, so on to the Museum of Discovery. So seriously, I confess I, I really struggled to figure out how to start this part of the conversation, but eventually I landed on the following, which I will ask before we walk virtually into the building. So we both read an article by Stanford D School's Laura McBain and Lisa Solomon titled Educator as Futurist, Moving Beyond Preparing for the Future to Shaping the Future. So Solomon and McBain wrote the following, I'm going to quote it, this moment has made us realize that we cannot just prepare kids for the future, we must help them develop the imagination, agency, and will to shape the future. As educators, we spend an inordinate amount of time preparing students for the future as if we know how the future will unfold for them. But in an ever-accelerating moment of uncertainty and ambiguity, merely being prepared feels insufficient. In a world filled with more unknowns than knowns, how do we help our students not just be, quote, prepared, but capable of envisioning and building the futures they want to bring to life, unquote. So I'm going to change the word students to just young people and ask you, Kristen, to respond to McBain and Solomon's question, like, how do we help our kids shape the future rather than just prepare for it? And as we stand outside of the building at MOD, so to speak, what is MOD's contribution to this process? Big, big questions. So, I mean, I I think I'll start with, actually, I think I'll start with one of our taglines that we use, which MOD is a place to be and be inspired place to be and be inspired. And the, the reason we've come up with that tagline is, is about looking into cognitive development, you know, in adulthood and asking what are the what are the key driving questions that might come from the stage of development that our young people are likely to be at. And so we came then down to, you know, to thinking about two key questions. And the first question is, do I belong? 
And and for us, you know, our museum is part of a university where access and equity is actually built into the constitution. And mm. so ensuring that young people belong in tertiary education, regardless of their family experience or history is is really important. And so that's the first thing we strive to do is to make make it a place where any young person feels like it is a place for them. And the second question we thought they might have is who am I and how am I special? You know, which is really the what what kind of expertise do I have? What are my talents and skills and how am I going to apply these in, in my life? And that comes to a question of, you know, how am I going to navigate my future? Mm. How am I going to work my way through this? And this is the be inspired part of that tagline. So mm. in anything we're creating, we're, we're asking ourselves, is this going to make somebody feel like they belong? And is it going to help them navigate the future? Mm. So that's probably the starting point. If I, if I think about the way that I usually think about the major ways of thinking about the future, I think it comes down to four, four things, really. One is, one is that ability to be able to, like we talked about before, being able to scan the world and seeing those things that are of interest that I didn't know that I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. you know and, so, and so for me, you know, one of the things that I think we do for young people you know, and especially as curriculums in education get tighter and more rigid, is that we provide a spot for randomness. You know, so by changing the exhibition every year, by having a whole lot of, you know, multidisciplinary research on display, you'll see something that you didn't know that you didn't know. And we're introducing randomness into your life that then might spark something further. Mm. The second thing is imagination. So, you know, that comes up in that article. How do you help people imagine alternative futures? Well, you know, Helping them see things they didn't know is the first point. Providing a, a whole lot of different variations on the future might be the second point. How do you find which of those visions might be your preferred? Mm. You know, what do you actually want to do? How, you know, not just how are you going to navigate your future, but how are you going to create your future, I think is that question. And the last one is about how much agency do you have to create the change that, mm. that you want. So those those things are also on our mind. And the other thing that's coming to mind just as a framework is, is the Futures Triangle, again, by Sahel in Ayatollah where he talks about when we're looking at the things that are going to, you know, the drivers of change in the present that are going to shape the future, he often has two key questions, which is what are the things that we're seeing that give us momentum and what are the things that we're seeing that we need to resist? And I think key for me in the article that you've referenced is is this idea that often when we think about the future, we're really focused on that resist. You know, here are the things you need to learn in order for you to to fit into the system that's going to crush you. <laughs> or here are the things that you need to know in order for us to combat climate change. And, right. and they're quite they're quite heavy. Mm, they're quite yes. heavy responses. Mm-hmm. Whereas on the on the flip side of that, there are all of these delightful opportunities or things that allow us to really leap forward the things that give us momentum to create change you know so you might say i i feel defeated by the lobbying of fossil fuels on government and you know the signals of corruption that we're seeing seep into the system Mm -hmm. and on the other hand you might look at the school strike for climate and say well there is actually an enormous movement that is bringing these things to light nothing cleans corruption like sunlight so you know Mm. there is there is something that then gives me movement or something to leap forward Mm -hmm. so in I guess to come back to the to the question of how you know how how are we helping young people shape their future I think what we're trying to do is we're trying to firstly give them the confidence that that they have a role that Mm. they belong Right, right secondly we're trying to give them all of these options and all of these ideas that might spark something that is true to them that they can then take forward and I think the final thing is that we we always want our young people to leave the museum feeling hopeful 
And so hope is about having a positive image that draws you forward, you know, which you hopefully have seen from the sorts of things that we've shown you. It's about knowing that there are multiple ways to get there and you're not sort of stuck in in one rut, unable to get out. And it's also then about feeling like you've got agency to make a difference. Mm. So those are the things that we'd really be focusing on in terms of helping young people start to shape their own futures. Got it. And so just for a second as a follow-up, Let's just imagine you and I are standing outside the museum and it's one of those days. I mean, the numbers, Kristen, that I've read about and that you've provided for me are astounding and that I've heard you speak about, like in TEDx and so on. Really astounding. Tens of thousands of young people, 15 to 25, come through. So we're standing outside the doors and there are young people who are walking by us into the museum. You've talked about what you all are thinking about as part of the museum staff and the and the imaginers and the, and the curators of this. What do you think's on their minds as they come into the building, these young people? Like, what's, what's going on with them? What do you think they're thinking? I'm going to tell you three stories, which I think illustrate <laughs> okay. a little bit of the, awesome. a little bit of the variety. So one weekend I came in, I'd, I'd left something in the office and, and I came in open on the Saturday morning and I, I, I looked down into the foyer and there were a group of about seven 16 year olds and they had come in and they were just coming across the foyer, having visited the downstairs galleries, about to come to the upstairs galleries. And they're all chatting with each other, kind of moving in a group. And I was eavesdropping a little bit mm. <laughs> as they came, as they came up to this to the first floor. And they weren't talking about anything that was in the museum. You know, they were talking about some bit of school gossip or relationship issue that one of them was having. Mm -hmm. And then I watched them go into the first gallery and their attention was then totally on the exhibition. And I thought that's that's a perfect example because of a place to be, mm, right? So they, yeah. they weren't coming mm -hmm. here because they, they needed to see something or they needed to, they were learning or whatever. They were just coming because they wanted to hang out with their friends mm. and this was a good place to hang out and... You know, one of one of my eldest daughter's friends recently said that her new boyfriend had suggested that they maybe go on a date to Maud without knowing that I had any in involvement. And I thought, <laughs> oh, we've totally made it. You know, we've oh. totally made it. We are that that space to kind of come and spend an hour where the conversation can be easy because you're looking at things and you're with your friends, and then you can go and get a coffee or go out for a glass of wine or whatever mm. in whatever age group you're in. So I think that's that's one thing that we really strive is is to is to make it that place for people who just want to mm. be social. And you know, in the city, we know that there are always issues with places that young people feel safe to hang out. You know, they'll hang out in the mall or they hang out at the beach. You know, and there's lots of activities for young people, and there's lots of activities if you're if you're getting into bars and clubs. But that that other audience kind of slips through a little bit. So that's that's the first thing on their mind is just can I can I hang out with my friends somewhere? Yeah, and yeah. for us, that's fantastic. We don't expect anything more of them. Yeah, that's fabulous. Then I think there's the the group that comes probably. You know, I'm thinking about a school group. So I went down this morning and there's there were about 25 people in red and green uniforms. They were sitting in the cafe. They were in the galleries. You know, I didn't get a chance to ask them why they were here, but often when we get school groups through, it's, it's to provoke a question about something that they're studying. So, you know, there might be something of interest that, that is relating to one of the topics that they're doing or sometimes we get groups through because they're doing entrepreneurship studies and they're trying to spark ideas or they're doing kind of city adventures where they're getting a little bit of independence or, you know, so I think, mm -hmm. you know, in those instances it's probably not 
your choice to come here. <laughs> you yeah. know, you've probably mm-hmm. been brought along with a with a facilitator, a teacher, or, or you know, sometimes that's a parent. And the idea is that you're you're coming here to see something that's going to spark an idea or link to some learning that you're doing. And so it's quite an exploratory experience then. You know, what Mm -hmm. can I find out? You know, how am I thinking about this? And in each of our galleries, we have a a large provocation sitting on the wall, which is supposed to spark the brain into then what am I seeing? How do I make sense of it? Mm -hmm. And then my other favourite type of visitor, and I saw three of them in the gallery this week, is the unexpected museum goer, mm. <laughs> you know. So, mm-hmm. so the three I saw this week were, were three guys, early 20s. They looked like they were coming to us specifically, but they, but they might have been students at the university and they, and they came in and they were, you know, they were really excited to see something. And I'm not quite sure what they were coming into, but we've, you know, we've had exhibitions on augmented reality art and we've got some exhibitions at the moment which are quite interactive in terms of picking up parts of your your body and your face to tell stories and that you know they're, they're coming because something cool is happening and they want they want to be a part of it and they might not be the sort of person who would necessarily go to another cultural institution but we're doing something that really appeals to to their interests so mm. yeah those those three stories would illustrate you know some of the breadth about what might be on someone's mind when they when they approach those front doors wow that's awesome i love that last story and i remember you're in another talk that you gave you talked about three guys who came in three blokes who came in wearing hoodies and that it was very unexpected <laughs> I remember yeah. You, yeah, you and a staff member yeah. looked at each other like, what? What's going on here? Yeah, that was really early on as well when, when I was trying. So we didn't, do, we didn't do a lot of school programs in the first two years of opening. Schools came, but we weren't offering anything specific. And that was a deliberate strategy because I wanted us to be cool. <laughs> and I know, you know, I just thought if the first experience of MOD for a young person is coming along on a school visit, will be slotted into that portion of their brain that says museums are for school visits, you know. So most people go to museums once when they're at school and then once when they have young kids and that's yep. it. Yep. And I didn't want to be slotted into that position of a brain that said this is this is a school-based thing because part of my thinking was we actually want to get to the kids that aren't engaged at school as well. You know, we, we want we want them to see you know if if you if you have a terrible science teacher and it's the worst experience of your life and yet you come to something at mod and go but that was really good yeah maybe that pathway to science is still open to you instead of mm. being closed so yeah. so when those three guys came in yeah i think that's what I, what prompted my my thinking this week seeing that other group of three guys but when those when those guys came in about you know four, four years ago now um i just thought oh i think i think I think we've hit the mark. <laughs> and they came, they came in like half an hour before closing time to see the one thing that was cool. And I was just like, yeah, this is oh, great. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. So we'll get into um, Inside the Doors of Mod in a moment. Well, we'll take a break here. Hey everyone, if your brain is hurting, we're going to take a short break. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more questions for Dr. Kristen Alford. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler, 
Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at unrulr.com. Mahalo. Hey everyone, we are back with Dr. Kristen Alford, an engineer, a futurist, and foresight specialist, and the director of the Museum of Discovery at the University of South Australia. So, all right, we're now inside of Maud. And so during my research, I discovered Maud is described in a Wikipedia article about the University of South Australia. And in that section of the Wikipedia article is a brief description of a recent exhibition titled Our Family Tree, which apparently involves an Australian rules football player, a sacred 500-year-old tree, an algorithm that mixes sounds of the winds, a paint cloud, and much, much more. And Kristen, I was like, what? And so how in the world did this exhibition come about and what is its object? What happens in it? And for young people coming to the museum or seeing it online, what is the takeaway? Yeah, so so Our Family Tree forms part of our Invisibility exhibition, which is this year's exhibition, which came about because of one of those Future Themes forums where the conversations that we put together were conversations around the right to hide and concerns about data privacy and ubiquitous sensing, about slowness on climate action and and the importance of climate justice, Mm. and then thinking about the voices of people who aren't often heard and social equity. And, And then that also picked up some other conversations around First Nations knowledges and connection to country. And so we thought these things are interesting and we've put and we put them together as a as a selection of thinking about the things that are unseen or unnoticed or unheard and how do we make those things more visible. So that so invisibility is all about making things more visible. Mm-hmm. And so specifically that work which is part of a, a larger project featuring Adam Goods, who's the AFL footballer, who is an Aboriginal man from Anjamantia country, Angie Abdillo, who's a designer, who's a Palawe Trulawe woman, and artist Baden Palethorpe, who are really thinking about cultural knowledges in this emerging digital world where there is data on everything. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for us, it was a really interesting opportunity to work with them because we were interested in that issue about data privacy and data ownership. Adam's got access to all of his data from his time playing AFL football. Mm. And so thinking about, you know, who owns that data and as an Aboriginal man, does it hold cultural knowledge was really the starting point for that particular exhibition. Wow. And then, you know, again, as you come through the exhibition, that particular exhibit is... I guess, complemented by works. We have a a selection of works from an art collective in Germany called Tactical Tech, which are talking about data privacy and ask questions about what Google knows about you and Mm. thinking about all the leaky data that we have where young people can then sort of sit at a desk and actually take their device and work through all of their privacy settings to to make sure they fit their own values. Mm -hmm. We have two works by one biometric mirror by Lucy McRae and one called Mirror Ritual by Nina Ratchik which are works that play off facial recognition. So I, I love Mirror Ritual. It, it basically scans your face and determines what kind of mood you are in. And then based on that mood, it detects it. It's, it's an artificial intelligence or machine learning algorithm that's been trained on a database of poetry mm. and it will write a unique 
poem for you based on your facial expression. So, for instance, I went in yesterday, I got myself a poem. I've got quite a lot on at the moment. I must have been looking worried because it said, <laughs> you know, you are elated until you realise that everything stops at 11pm on a Friday. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> and then, you know, there are also other works that talk about that connection to country that we see in our family tree work. So we have a beautiful seasonal work called Kurukari by Carl Telfer, who's a senior custodian for the Ghana people, which is the land that we're on. And that's just been recently awarded a, a national award. It tells the story of the Ghana seasons. So there are six seasons that unfold throughout the year. And we really then can connect with visitors about knowledge of those Aboriginal seasons, introduce them to Ghana language and, and what what sort of happens on country during those seasons. Mm. And another work on Ghana land called Reflect the Light and Shade of a Long Story, which talks about young people's perspectives of being connected to country. And so, you know, there's there's this real mix of things. And then we've got a research project, a PhD project, looking at Is Your Body Real in a Virtual Space, which is an interactive dance work. Wow. And then we've got work also mm. relating to thinking about deep time and thinking about research that happens underneath the Earth's surface mm. and what that can tell us about long-term climate. And we have another work about climate change and, and the effects on the ocean, which is a really visceral, beautiful work where it's a touchscreen work, but by interacting with the beauty of a coral reef, you cause, you cause damage. Mm. So I guess what we try and do in each exhibition is we try and have, you know, that variety of disciplines that talk to each other. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so we are showcasing research, we're showcasing emerging technologies, we're mm. showcasing different ways of knowing and pulling it in so that it, in ways it's surprising for people and there's juxtapositions that then spark other ideas. Yeah. Wow. You know, just the whole notion of making visible that which is invisible really rocked my world, Kristen. And, and you know, in some ways, all of this work to prepare for today really kind of helped me maybe to refocus myself on what this podcast is all about, because it was originally conceived as highlighting innovative and creative and imaginative educators. But the underlying premise of that is that they are often invisible to people, to the public. We don't actually see their work. We might see it through the students who are in their classes who are our kids. But in general, we don't. And that was you know, it really helped me to think through the ways that each episode of this podcast is attempting to make visible that which might be invisible to some other person. I mean, you're very visible I and mean, you've, you've TEDx talks and things like that. But, but if I open this up to even one person who, you know, for that person, you were invisible, then something changes as a result of that. And I'm just yeah. kind of blown away yeah. by that idea, you know? Well, I think a really good example of that is each year the University of South Australia runs a competition called the Images of Research and Teaching. I was lucky enough to be on the judging panel for that uh, this year and it's front of mind because that was one of this week's activities. And so researchers and students and teaching academics will put submit photographs or illustrations that illustrate the work that they do at the university. And the winning image from a couple of years ago, if you can picture a, a photograph looking out towards the sea, but it's a really grey day on land that's quite dry. And so it has these sort of almost grey brown tones to the photo. Mm. And in the middle of the photo, there is a young girl walking away from us, holding behind her like a cape, an old curtain, which is from a nursery and has kind of teddy bears and toys in the lace work. Mm. 
And the picture was submitted by one of our researchers, Kelly Ryan, who's doing her PhD. Kelly's a lawyer. She is a foster carer and she's working around changes to foster care regulation to provide protection for foster families. And that work is just so beautiful and evocative. And I, I think for her work, especially thinking through COVID and those children who become invisible, you know, during a period like that. Mm. So we, ha- we, have, we have that work in a series of works from her on display. But, you know, it's, it's not normally the opportunity that you'd get as a, as a law, you know, somebody doing a PhD in law to be talking about that work in a museum with the general public. Mm. And we've had her, you know, give a public talk and, and we've been able to showcase her work. And, and for her, the feedback was, was actually really special because she said, you know, through that process, we'd given her opportunities to engage in ways that she had, mm. had not been expecting and the benefits of, of working with us on that. What seems like quite a small photographic exhibition has actually had a big impact for her personally. So wow. those things are really special, I think. Oh, wow. That's amazing. In Hawaii, we call it chicken skin. You would call it goosebumps. I've got them right now. Uh-huh. That's, that's pretty, pretty amazing. So wh- one more question about exhibitions. I wonder if you can just briefly describe the seven siblings exhibition, which you wrote about in a medium piece, and I absolutely loved what you wrote about it. And I, I also want to add on to the to the description of Seven Siblings, maybe opening the door a little bit to the kinds of feedback that you get from museum visitors and what that feedback tells you about the impact that you're having on the kids or the people who are coming through. Yeah, this, this was a delightful exhibition and something that was a bit unusual for us. So it, it actually comes from the Hureka Science Centre in Helsinki. And I was fortunate enough to, to go and to speak at a conference and see this exhibition. And I was like, this is this is amazing. It We should have it. And I've, it's based on a Finnish folk story, which is about seven brothers. I think lots of cultures have these folk stories about seven brothers or seven sisters. Mm-hmm. And it basically positions these seven siblings in a future. And each sibling has a is driven by a specific set of values. Mm. And each of them are trying to solve a specific problem that sort of sits within the future. And so that that particular exhibition was very Finnish. It was, you know, in Finnish, Swedish and English. The, the siblings felt very Finnish. And so we we worked with Hureka to do an adaptation for, for here in, in South Australia. So that was that was firstly a delightful project because I just think it talks to those kind of shared global concerns about the future for starters. Mm. Secondly, the values that were underpinning the siblings were based on Schwartz cultural indicators and, and actually the Finnish and Australian cultures are not are not too far off. So, so it meant that we were able to adapt it fairly easily. Right. And so the experience of visitors coming into that exhibition was that you you met the siblings through a, an introductory video and found out that they were trying to solve a problem about what to do with some land they'd inherited from their grandmother. And then there were seven gallery experiences each where you would meet a film version of the sibling who would chat to you about what they were trying to do. And then there'd be some interactives 
So, you know, one of the siblings, Julia, they were particularly driven by this by a need for safety and security. Their particular interactive was set in bushfire country and they were trying to build a bushfire refuge. And so what they needed your help to do in the interactive was to determine what you would put in the refuge, like what were the three most important things to take into the refuge to help build Mm. the future. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the exhibition, you would find out, you know, you'd, you'd collect these interactive feedback as you went through either on an app or on a paper passport and at the end you could find out which sibling was most like you. Wow. So, you know, who do you resonate with? And then we asked people to draw or provide some feedback on a wall about what they were now going to do to create the sort of future that they they mm. wanted. Mm. So really, really special exhibition. Wow, yeah. And I think the, you know, the key parts of that were the provocations that that came to people. But I think the most memorable thing for me was, you know, we opened it in November 2019. And so first of all, if you look at the story I just told about the sibling, Julia, you know, that's about bushfires. It's about being prepared for that sort of thing. And actually in in December 2019 and January 2020, Australia had you know, the worst bushfires they've ever had. Yeah. And, and, and certainly in our area, we had bushfires quite close to the city in the hills and, and just off south on, on Kangaroo Island, which is not too far away. And, you know, lives were lost and it was, it was very, you know, it, it felt like the end of the world. <laughs> yeah. And in that week, the whole of our feedback board about what people were going to do to change the future was just a sea of red drawings essentially talking about fire and the need to act on climate change. And it was mm. it was really it was really powerful. And we we found people really affected. We actually got advice from our professor in, in mental health about how to help people move through that grief because mm. there was there was grief coming through in the in the galleries quite palpably. I think, you know, also interestingly, one of the other stories that we had was the story of Alex is a telehealth nurse in the future. Mm. And so Alex was responsible for monitoring the health of older citizens in in, an, in aged care facilities, but it meant that they didn't have to come in for medical. He, you know, he was, mm-hmm. they were basically looking at the, the process from a control room. And then, of course, COVID hits in March 2020. Oh, my goodness. And, and telehealth suddenly, you know, is, is again, you know, present in the environment and maybe not with all of the technological aspects that Alex had, but certainly the video conferencing, certainly the concerns about aged care, certainly all of those things came to the fore. Mm. And so we were actually, well, we, we did we did have to close during COVID for a period of time, but when we came back, we actually put together a timeline, you know, that that looked at the evolution of, of telehealth with a great big and COVID hit and therefore this happened <laughs> wow. to try and sort of pull that all into perspective for people. So I think mm. that exhibition was, was really powerful on a number of fronts mm. because those topics were so, you know, important for people in the moment, mm. but also just thinking about the importance of, you know, us all bringing different values to how we want to shape the future and and having those having those conversations. So, you know, again, another futures principle is that, you know, I've said the future doesn't exist, but also the future is shaped by dialogue with each other. Mm. We don't do it independently. And I think one of the most pleasing things about that exhibition was was the conversations that it prompted with our visitors. Wow. I can just imagine if I were a young person looking at the at the history of telehealth and all of a sudden something that I didn't know anything about becomes visible so the invisible becomes visible and then I start thinking to myself hmm maybe that's an area you know that I could go into and a spark happens in a moment like that that's part of it right yeah de- yeah definitely 
Definitely. And so one of, you know, one of the things that I'm reflecting on today was that we've got a, a youth board, which is 10 young people at the moment, they're aged 16 to 22. They're co-designing a, an event, a public event, you know, the sort of event that they would like to attend. Mm. And one of the things that they decided to do was to run a poster competition for the event imagery. Mm. And what we realised when those posters had come in, that one of the posters was done by a young woman called Jasmine. Then we realised that Jasmine had actually done work experience with us two years ago, three years ago when she was in year 11. And then we realised that Jasmine's now enrolled at the university in a Bachelor of Creative Industries. Wow. You know, and so just, you know, that's a that's a bigger touch point than a visitor coming in. Absolutely. And it's really hard for us to gather visitor stories, but knowing that for, you know, and I can't speak for Jasmine. I don't know whether it was, it was us that prompted that, but I like to think that mm. her work experience here has given her a spark that has now led to a career exploration yeah. that's relevant to the, you know, to what she's seen when she's done work experience with us. So, th- you know, those, those things I think are, are really, really exciting in terms of, yeah, just picking up those, those sparks and those possibilities for the young people that we work with. That's fabulous. So Kristen, one more question before we bring this awesome conversation to a close. You wrote a piece for Medium just over two years ago. And in that piece, you talked about an explosion of creativity at Maud and about looking at the world through the eyes of a toddler. And you wrote, and I quote, too often we reach an age where the idea of play seems frivolous and we should just get on with real work. No, just no. And I wonder <laughs> if I wonder if you could speak to our audience of mostly educators and education leaders, like why no, just no. How did how do we get out of this productivity box and reinsert play as a primary and highly valued element of our culture and of what school could be and what learning could be? Yeah, I, I somehow sometimes I realise I have very strong opinions. I mean, I think I think this. I always like to think of myself as fairly, you know, reasonable. And but but yeah, there are some things that that really really get me cross. And I think I think it is that you know that thing that we discussed earlier, which is around you know this kind of almost unseen thing that sort of says, oh, you, you know, you you know, once you finish school, then you then you know stuff, and then you go and you do what you need to do for the rest of your life. And I I, I just don't I just don't think that's how we're wired as as humans necessarily. So the idea of play is, I think, essential in futures anyway, because unless you're being unless you're being playful, you're not you're not starting to think through the, that possibility space. Mm. You know, so I, I think again, it was something Perul said last time, which you know, around the the value of you know hanging around with really young kids where nothing seems impossible, mm. but a but a good adult engaged in play is is as is as inspirational. You know, it and is. I think we. Dim- we diminish ourselves when we when we forget that we also have that to offer. Mm. So, um, and I just back to your to your comment about Hawaii and 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 Jim Data because I I'm I think I probably quote Jim Data once a week <laughs> with his law of future studies, which is that it, for an idea about the future to be useful, first it should appear to be ridiculous, because you know if it doesn't appear to be ridiculous, then you're then you're probably thinking about something that you've already thought about for a long time. And mm. that idea of being ridiculous is an invitation to play, yes. to sort of say this, say the thing that's stupid that makes you laugh, or to say the thing that's makes you feel a bit sick or a bit ill because it's kind of not not something or icky or, or whatever it is. So I think for me that that invitation to play is really about you know deliberately opening up that 
that possibility space. Mm-hmm. And as I say that, I think there is also something that parallels to being resilient because you can't be resilient if if you're tight and held down and really efficient. Yeah. You know, you can only be resilient when there's more space. And I think you can only play when there's more space. So I think I think there is something in the way that we work or the way that we teach or learn where we need to give ourselves, you know, that ring of space that allows for resilience, that allows for play, mm. you know, that allows for failure, you know, all of those things kind of exist in in that in that space if we can create it. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. So, Kristen, thank you for this time today. We hope you and your family, your three daughters, stay safe and in good health. You have really inspired me, you know, through this whole process of getting ready for this conversation, just the opportunity to, you know, go into Maud's website to explore the exhibitions. There were so many moments where I was surprised and delighted. It was just like things that were like, wow, where did that come from? How did that get in there? And I love the idea of an explosion of creativity. And I I just really appreciate how you will, with the publication of this episode, possibly open the doors to explosions of creativity for the educators and education leaders who listen to this podcast. So thank you so much for that. Oh, and, and thank you, Josh. I must say it's been an absolute pleasure thinking about this and I, and I wanted to thank you for your your generosity of spirit and I think when you talk about you know raising what people are doing and, and making that visible just the beautiful way that you've given me feedback and that you've been excited and enthusiastic about what we do has has just been so gratefully received and I, I'm, I'm sure that that's what resonates with the community as well so thank you so much. That's awesome take care Kristen. Thank you. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurahara. Our theme music and musical interludes come from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. This series is underwritten by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast. Friends, these are uncertain and challenging times. The headlines, especially around education, can be relentlessly negative. Please bring kindness, compassion, innovation, creativity, and imagination into the world. We need a surplus of all of these right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take care. <laughs>